Uh, if you have a Bible with you, Matthew 13 is where we're going to be, Matthew 13. And as you're turning there, just by way of introduction, my name is Lance, and I serve as a pastor here and have for about 10 years now or so. And it's one of the gifts of my job that I get to study the Bible and then talk about it with you, study it together on a Sunday morning. So here's my prayer, my desire, my hope, and that is, is that in this study, you hear good news. Matthew is called a gospel. It's the first book of the New Testament. And what we mean by gospel is just that. It's a word that means good news. It is not advice. It's not meant to cajole, but instead meant to announce something. The reality is is that Matthew, who is a close confidant of Jesus, one of his closest followers early on, sat down to record what it is about Jesus that was so good. He describes how God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us, and this was good, and then it got better from there. Jesus lived a perfect life, and Matthew saw up close how Jesus, though he was man, was able to fulfill every bit of the law. He did everything perfectly. How we are so imperfect and unable to do, Jesus did what was lost by all humanity in the garden. And if that were not enough... Jesus didn't come just to show that it's possible for someone to be righteous, but then went to the cross and died an unrighteous person's death so that his righteousness could be given to you and to me. So not only is it good news that God has come and dwelt among us, and not only is it good news that he lived a perfect life, but it's good news, it's gooder news that he absorbed our unrighteousness and then gives to us his righteousness. And then if that were not enough, Matthew's the story nearing the end. If you get through to the end and fight through all the the spoilers, the reality is, is that Jesus, this same Jesus, was not held by the grave, but resurrected to new life. That means that every single one of you who will face death one day, who have grieved and cried over the death of a loved one, have hope and good news in Jesus that death itself is a mere minor obstacle to the life that he brings in himself. And Matthew, reflecting on all this, having experienced it, says, I need to write an account of good news, and that is the person of Jesus. So we're smack dab in the middle of that. We're in the middle of the 13th chapter, which is getting dangerously close to the dead center of the book. And I'm going to pick it up now with a parable. Jesus has been teaching Last week, we saw him introduce the concept of parables, things thrown alongside, an everyday story that brings a particular meaning to the forefront. And we're going to continue now with an agrarian theme. It's the parable of the weeds, the wheat and the tares. So please follow along. I'm going to begin reading in the 24th verse. This is Matthew 13, 24. I'm going to read down to verse 30. We're going to skip a a little bit of a section there in verses because we're going to come back later to those and because the explanation for our parable comes a little bit later in Matthew. But let's look together now, Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, 
An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We're going to skip down now to verse 34. It says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And as his disciples came to him, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And I know that praying together in a setting like this seems odd. I have a microphone and you don't. And it's going to be mostly quiet other than my voice. But what I mean is this. Could we pause enough to consider an open heart and ask that we would be like those who Jesus says, if you have ears, hear. So let's, in a spirit of wanting to receive an expectation, ask that God gives us ears. Let's pray together. Father, I ask by your spirit that you would give us courage to admit that we are often deaf. We have ears that have been stopped up, sometimes by our own doing, by our own desires. We put our own fingers in our ears so as not to hear from you. And also, the doubts that we encounter the sin of others, the discouragement that comes with suffering, questions that are unanswered, make it difficult to hear you. And so I ask that you would count us among the number of those who have ears and can hear. Not that my words would force the issue or cause it, but we pray, Father, may your words do more than entertain or more than pass the time, we ask that they would be living and active and that we would be more like Jesus as we listen. We pray now for this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're in the disciples' shoes at this point, and Jesus has shown his power, imagine this, your best friend can say to demons, go, and they run away. Your best friend can make dead people rise again. Your best friend can take people who are lame and have arms that don't work and make them work. 
Your best friend draws near to those who are outcasts. And more than that, you are becoming convinced that your best friend at this point, your rabbi, your teacher, is in fact the king of the universe, the the savior, the one who has come. And now I want you to imagine that that same savior, the one that you are putting your trust in, you've left everything to follow, that he keeps enduring the taunting, the ridicule, the political pressures of scribes, Pharisees, of crowds that are there to gawk. And my guess is is that in that position, perhaps you and the disciples were probably wondering why Jesus isn't doing more to bring about his kingdom. Doesn't he hear the taunts? Doesn't he see the hypocrisy that continues and is ongoing? Doesn't he understand the politics of the day that God's people don't have a land, they're ruled over, they're sidelined, Perhaps they begin to feel a little bit like I did when we got our dog. You see, our dog, in the midst of training him, I was very saddened that over the course of months, no matter what I did, he did not want to fetch well. And here's the crazy part. I bought a dog with retriever in the name. He's a Labrador retriever. And yet, when I try to teach him to retrieve, maybe once he did if the tree was big enough, but otherwise he would just get tired and lay there and just kind of look at me, panting and smiling. It's like the meme where I wish I had like a stick and I'd just be like, do something. Could you retrieve? In other words, I learned the pain of that insult, which is a hunter's insult, to say of something, that dog won't hunt. It's like getting a hunting dog that won't Hunt. It's like buying a retriever that won't retrieve. And I'm wondering if some of the disciples are thinking to themselves, this is crazy. We have a kingdom that doesn't king. We have a church that doesn't church. We have a Savior who isn't doing a lot of present saving is what it seems like to them. In other words, I believe they're starting to get impatient which is why Jesus tells a series of parables. And if I'm going to put one big theme over the top, remember parables generally have one big idea running through them. It seems as though these parables are meant to teach patience. Patience. Because for many people who lack patience or do not fully understand or perceive it, perhaps they don't understand their position in the world, their authority or the timing of things, often see patience as mere passivity. And what Jesus is going to teach those who are following him is that patience is not the same thing as passivity. That he is in fact extremely active and he will bring about maturity in his purpose and in his mission in the world. So he's not a hunting dog that won't hunt. He's not a retriever that won't retrieve. He's not a king who doesn't kingdom. But they should wait And so he tells them this parable. He puts another parable before them. And we're just going to break this up as obviously as it gets. There's no need to be more genius than Jesus. This is a parable about a farmer in his field. That's going to be the first thing we'll consider. Jesus puts himself in that spot. The farmer in his field. What scope does that give us? Then we're going to talk about an enemy and false wheat. So farmer in his field, an enemy and false wheat. And then finally, we're going to consider the end and a great fire. The end in a great fire. So I want to consider these with you. The first thing is that it's obvious is that Jesus goes back to agrarian themes. 
Now, for an impatient person, this is already a problem. I want food now. Well, let me put a seed in the soil and wait for the rain. Agrarian illustrations by nature are going to be a slow-moving plotting process. My guess is if you try to be the great, grand, short-cutting farmer, you're not going to get very many places and certainly not too far. You can't shortcut the mechanics of the real world. And I would say that what Jesus indicates in this idea of the farmer in his field is to describe to the disciples the real world. And it turns out that the real world is a mixed place. It is a place full of tension. The real world is a place where there is maturing and goodness and promise of harvest. And the real world is a place where there are imitators and irritants and potential poisons and expectation of burning. That's what he gives them. So he says to them, imagine there's a farmer who goes out and sows good seed. He makes a point that the farmer has done what is good. But then there are weeds found in this field. And there are active, perhaps do-gooding active, not passive servants who notice these weeds. So they run up to the farmer and they're curious. They think, well, maybe he didn't notice. Maybe he missed something. More than that, they make an accusation. So their first statement is, perhaps he doesn't know. Their second statement is, uh, perhaps he knows, but he's a bad farmer, and he sowed the wrong seed. So they go to him, and they say, well, we can fix this. Let's do this right now. Can we go in there and stop being passive and get them out? And Jesus says something surprising of this farmer. He tells them, no, 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 here's the thing about this situation. You need to be patient. Let them grow together, and then we'll have the harvest, and there will be a separation. Reapers will come. Now later, we're going to get a couple of definitions. We know that the farmer is the son of man. He's going to say that as he explains it. This is a title that Jesus brings to himself. And we know that there is good going on in the world. He assures them, he says, no, no, no. The Son of Man is planting good seed in the world. He's inviting them to see his ministry as the work of ongoing goodness. He's not making mistakes. He's not overlooking things. He is planting good seed. Now, one of the next questions, and there's been no small debate about the field. In what places and in what way will there be this mixed relationship between true and false? In one way, you think, well, this isn't a debate at all. Jesus tells them, the field is the world. That's pretty straightforward. The field is the world. But the question quickly becomes, how strictly is it the world? Does that mean that there is only a tension or a battle between good and bad out there? Where it seems obvious? Where there are sneaking, sulking, evil people? Or is it also true that perhaps this mixed metaphor of patiently waiting to see the end result of good fruit, is it possible that that even is in the midst of God's people as well? And down through the ages, most people who have studied this passage and have taught it, have said that it actually speaks not only, of course, to the world, which is obvious, there's good and bad, but also to the tension that exists within God's people and is extended all the way through into the church, which is in the world, but not of it. 
The reality here is that there is fallen, fake tension in the reality of this world. So my question for you would be, for you to listen to this parable and to get the point, I might just ask you, do you feel that tension? Do you say to yourself, I believe there's good in the world. I know there's truth and there's beauty. And I see so much common grace popping up, inventions and music and art and industry and storytelling. Do you say to yourself, there's definitely good in the world. But then you also feel and you wonder at the suffering and you say, man, babies are born and it's beautiful and we cry and people commit to one another to love forever. But at the same time, children suffer and starve and die. And people divorce and are unfaithful and cause one another pain. And there is peace and prosperity and there is war and absolute poverty. And you say to yourself, when I look at the world, I feel the tension of these things. Perhaps you even swing wildly from being a sort of Pollyannish, hopeful person that says, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, until it turns into crying And you swing wildly back the other way and you say, actually, everything is terrible and I'm not going to leave my bed today and there's no hope and everyone is the worst, maybe including yourself. And then I'd ask the question, is it true that there is a kind of mixed, fake, false, true, maturing, fruitfulness and expectation of burning even within the church? Does it end the closer you get to Jesus? Is Jesus insulating himself from this mixed metaphor? And the reality seems to be no. I'll give you just some evidence that I think means that this reality of the tension between fallenness and hopefulness extends all the way down into our existence within the church. The first is that Jesus and his own set of disciples experienced this. Did Jesus know that Judas was a betrayer at this particular moment? The answer is yes. He says later that he's the son of perdition who was born to do this very thing. Well, if he knew it, then maybe someone would come to him and say, "Uh, do you want me to just off him right now? Like, I promise, I have a shovel in the back. He won't be looking. I'll just hit him. We're going to save ourselves the whole cross thing. Do you want me to just do this right now? I'm a do-getter. I'm an action taker. I'm not very passive. I just like to mix things up. The reality is that Jesus knew, but let things patiently mature. There was a different end in mind. So within Jesus' own set of disciples, there are true and false converts. I think a second bit of evidence, the sower story that we read last week and looked at, indicates that there are many soils, and some of the soils joyfully receive the word of God, and then there is no root, and they prove to be unfair true. There are others who are planted but in a mixed soil where there's the riches and cares of the world. The contours of the, and the intensity of the cares of the world cause them to be choked out and so prove to be untrue. The Pharisees and the scribes are more evidence that even within God's people that there will be a constant tension of the reality that the work of the Spirit of God is being active, is active and, and being fruitful, and at the same time, there is immaturity and potential falseness. The Pharisees and the scribes were the leaders of Israel. These were God's chosen people. And yet they were lost, and they wanted to put to death the very Messiah who they had waited for. How could this be? 
I think there are other teachings of Jesus, more indications that there are some who will come to him and he'll say to them, depart, I never knew you. Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The reality is that the whole point of this field metaphor seems to be that next to one another there are plants and it's difficult to discern what they will become. We're going to talk about why that is in just a moment. Here's another example, 2 Corinthians 13.5. The Corinthian church was a mixed bag. It was crazy. Have you ever heard someone just say like, oh, I just long for the early church. I wish that we could be simple. I just want to go back to the early church where they just loved each other and shared bread by putting it in one another's mouths. And then I would say to you, have you read the Bible? The early church was full of insanity, crazy things. In fact, Paul says, there are things happening among you that ought not to be mentioned. And then the thing he mentions is incestual relationships between fathers and daughter-in-laws and stuff. And you think, well, if you will mention that, what will you not mention? And in the end of this, Paul says to the church in Corinth, in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about this yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So the reality is, is that so long as we live here in this world, of course there will be bad seeds and bad plants out there, but we should not get too judgy about there because the reality of fallenness fights down to the very depth of our own souls. And the church one day will be perfectly pure, a bride completely pure for the bridegroom. But for now, this visible church we deal with is as much hopeful as it is disappointing. And I feel the tension. I'm sort of a, I am actually a professional churchy person. And there are times when I could just soar. I hear stories of the way that you love people, the way that community groups care for people in need and provide People who pray for others in the midst of deep sorrow and suffering. Sacrificial giving. And I could just soar and I would say, absolutely yes, the church is the hope of the world. It is everything God intended. This is the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then I wait about a week. And then other times when I think, wow, how is the church the hope of the world and yet we're so immature? And I feel doubts in myself, or I'll feel a difficulty, and I'm just pressing up against what I know that I'm called to be in Christ. Or I hear the way that so many of us have a kind of stunted repentance. We believe, but we're fighting through our unbelief. There's a tension. The reality of this world in a fallen state is mixed. That's what Jesus is teaching by the farmer and the field. And now, I want to say to you, this does not negate church discipline. Matthew 18, Galatians, Corinthians, for instance, does say, where sin is obvious and destructive, remove it. The farmer does not say to the servants, actually, I don't need any more servants, just let whatever happens to the field happen. So church discipline is still a thing. It's not an excuse for obvious sin, But I think it does teach us a lesson about how patient we are to be with people inside and outside the church. We must learn the lesson of the servants who sometimes in an overzealous, rigid commitment to purity 
are very, very preoccupied with a kind of premature, perhaps unauthorized, vigilante flame-throwing. You see, there's going to be a judgment. God's going to bring it. And I love that he talks about angels as reapers. Don't you think of angels as little, red-faced, baby-like creatures who just come to love you? Sometimes you think about that. Well, there are angels like that, ministering angels. But Jesus also says there's going to be some, uh, some angels who come to start the fire. They are war-bringing, fire-branding, fire-starting angels. And everyone knows to fear the grim reaper, death and the judgment to come. But I think sometimes we've experienced as well an overzealous, do-gooder, vigilante, flame-throwing church purity expert who has, and you just bear with me, I came up with this and I thought it was okay. We go around as so many prim reapers. No? Yes? (laughs) Many of us don't fear necessarily the grim reaper because we're in Christ, but we have felt the tension of a very preoccupied, let's purify everything now and I'm the arbiter of it. And we have learned to fear the prim reaper. One who says, everything must be perfect and pure now or else. Or else. (laughs) There's no T in that, kids. Else. And Jesus says, so what's the answer to this? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we'll just never know. No, Jesus says, I want you to trust the farmer and be patient. Now, so that's the farmer in his field. The scope of it, the reality of this world that is mixed. The next question becomes, how did this happen? And I want you to note that Jesus is careful. He does not say that God is the author of sin, that he's the one that's doing this to test everyone. He throws in false converts every once in a while to keep you on your toes. I love the phrase, so plain to see here. An enemy has done this. Well, an enemy has done what? An enemy has gone in and planted weeds, but they're not obvious weeds. If you were growing a field of sunflowers and someone went in there and put in like one of those vines that overtakes every living thing in Tallahassee, it would be obvious. Sunflower, terrible pokey vine. Terrible pokey vine, sunflower, easy. The reality is that there are weeds that look identical to one another. And he says the enemy has done this. So the servants wonder two things about the farmer. Are you a, are you a negligent bad farmer? Or did you just not know? And Jesus says, no, an enemy has done this. Now, here's something that's interesting. We're about to go history lesson a little bit. One is farming lesson, one is history lesson. Apparently, the idea of a false wheat is a common problem at this time in the world, and perhaps still to this day. There was a seed of a plant called darnel, and darnel is nearly indistinguishable, both as a seed and an early plant form, all the way up to the point, basically, of harvest. And this seed was very, very commonly mixed in with and sold as good seed with wheat seed. And more than that, apparently, it was used commonly in a way of vengeance to trick or to harm the fortunes or the yield of someone you did not like. There is on the books a Roman law that describes the penalties for mixing in and under cover of night going in and planting weeds in another person's field. 
Now, I don't know about you, but do you encounter policies sometimes and you say to yourself, not, oh, that's going to be hard for me to avoid, but instead you ask yourself, how did everyone, anyone ever do that once? You ever think about that for policies? You know that everywhere there's a rule, that means that some person <laughs> lacking judgment, character, anything else, somehow stumbled into this. Crazy things like instructions for how to cook Pop-Tarts. Or, um, I remember one time I got a, a bookshelf in the mail and you open up the box and there's those little bead things in it that smell terrible and it says, do not eat, is not food. Have you ever been tempted to eat <laughs> that thing? Right? This just doesn't... So here's the point. Roman law said... Do not harm your enemies by sneaking in and putting in Darnell where wheat should be, then it must have been a problem to the point that it was a kind of vengeance. This is taken from that great bastion of all true knowledge and wisdom, Wikipedia. There's a phrase here now, to be fair, they're quoting a Bible commentary. So look at the church just enriching the world. It says this the similarity between these two plants, Darnell and true wheat, is so great that in some regions, Darnell is referred to as false wheat. It has all the images and bears all of the good parts of wheat coming, but it is called false wheat. More than that, apparently this particular plant, Darnell, that looks so much like wheat, is not only not fruitful or good for edible, but is dangerous and often has in it harmful bacteria that, if eaten, produces in a person a kind of drunken, nauseous state, now before you get excited, that can lead to death that can lead to death. And apparently people would die from eating this false wheat that had been planted in the field by mistake. The reality is here that the fall itself, the lie of the serpent, the inherited nature of sin and our act of sinning now is not the farmer's fault. He is not negligent. He is not unknowing. He is not incompetent. But an enemy has done this, and we are living with the reality of the consequences. Two great realities instituted here by Jesus. One, there is a mixed nature of the world, and two, there is a real devil who seeks to harm and destroy. And now you may say to yourself, well, I didn't have any problem realizing that the world was a difficult place. What I'm having problem with is hope. So the question becomes, what next? We've learned of the farmer in his field and the enemy in a false wheat. But Jesus points to the great hope of all things, and that is that there will be a judgment in the end. The Son of Man will come. He says the Son of Man is this farmer, the one who owns the field, and he'll send a, an army of angels coming as reapers. And he invokes and tells them, I know what you're waiting for. You want a kingdom that's going to king. And he promises them that it's coming. He's borrowing here from Daniel chapter 7, imagery that's going to be very important to understand for Jesus. This is what he says in verse 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, so imagine this, the Ancient of Days, God of all the universe, Yahweh presents to the Son of Man this. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Anyone who asks about the mixed reality of this world, about the ongoing suffering, about the existence of the enemy, why don't you just smite him? Then he would have been smoten and gone and no more weeds. And Jesus says, be patient. I'm not sure what day it is for you. I don't know if you woke up today and you're like, today's an optimistic day. I'm hopeful. There is good in humanity. I can accomplish something today. Of course there's going to be a harvest. I see beauty and truth and goodness today. Or perhaps you were on the other side. It was difficult to get out of bed because all you see is negative and suffering. And you think, I don't understand those hopeful people. Do they not see the war in the world, the suffering in the world, the difficulty in the world? Do they not understand what's true? And to both, both the overzealous, let's take on the whole world and fix everything now because I'm so hopeful, Jesus might say, be patient. And to those who cannot quite roll out of bed because the suffering is just too much and the difficulty and the work of the evil one is too obvious, Jesus might say, let's be patient. For the patient, there remains a perfect harvest of justice meted out in every measure. There will be a fire that will come to those who are unfruitful. There will be a judgment. That means that all who are evil and cause suffering and do so willfully will meet their proper fate. Evil ones will be known as evil. Those who are sons, those who are the family of the king will shine like the sun in obvious shining. And all of it will take patience. Patience is difficult though. And it's not just the disciples who needed to hear this parable. And I believe it's not just us. You see, the early church was often suffering. Remember the old adage again, oh, I just want to go back to the early church. I just, I just really want to face judgment in the gladiatorial pit. No one says that. But that's, this is the early church. The early church was suffering. And Peter, who faced suffering and was crucified like his Lord, wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3. What is the hope for those who are suffering? Well, he writes to them, and he says, I want you to be patient. This is the third chapter of 2 Peter, starting in verse 9. He has to remind them. He says, the Lord is not slow. I'm just going to repeat that again. I think it could be helpful. I'm not into mantras, but meditations are good. Every once in a while, they just pause and remind yourself that whatever situation you're in, we'll just say it again, the Lord is not slow. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, now if you say to yourself, patience, that sounds so passive, are you kidding me? Let's do something. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Patience is not weakness. Gentleness is not passivity. Instead, patience is what is possible 
for those who are in control. Patience is what is possible for those who have a depth of confidence and trust in the competence and goodness of the farmer. The theme of these parables seems to be patience. And why is that so hard? Well, like the servants of the master, it's because we are tempted to ask Jesus if he understands Sometimes we encounter difficulty or fallenness or sin in the world, and we want to go to Jesus and say, um, did you notice? You seem busy and not doing things, but did you notice? And patience would remind ourselves that patience is an ability to trust that Jesus has not missed anything. He is not unaware. He knows you. He sees you. He will never forsake you in your battle and struggle for righteousness and sin, in your ongoing, ongoing need for sanctification, Jesus sees. You may be tempted to know that He knows, but that bothers you because you say, well, I would do things differently. And patience is an ability to trust that Jesus has perfect judgment and discernment, and He hasn't taken the wrong strategy. There is no marvel world or otherwise, where an alternate universe could open up and you help the Savior to solve the problems of the world. God is not impatiently waiting for someone with a better idea, but He has perfect discernment and strategy. Patience means an ability to trust that Jesus has perfect timing, that the Lord is not slow. This means That as far as the promises come, for all things being made right, he will never be late. God has not shown up late once. But I would also remind you that he will not be early. Patience means trusting that God's timing is pristine. And there is not an alternate timeline wherein you would be happier or better off. And perhaps, finally, patience means trusting that Jesus is ultimately good. It may be that he knows, it may be that he has perfect discernment, that he hasn't missed a thing, that he's going to do it in his timing, but you say to yourself, but perhaps he secretly doesn't like me. Maybe he's making this go longer because he wants to punish. Perhaps it's just that it's not the enemy that's done this, but he is doing this. And patience is trusting that Jesus is ultimately good that he has what is best in mind. There's not an alternate world of greater satisfaction for you. The goodness and competence and timing and discernment of Jesus will ultimately lead to what he promises here, that one day all causes of sin, imagine that, all causes of sin, he says, will be removed. That's difficult to even fathom. That means all causes of sin in yourself, your enslavement gone, your struggles gone, all causes of sin for those who make suffering happen in the world to you and to others, gone. He says all lawbreakers, gone. This is going to sound overly romanticized in country, But I remember as a kid growing up and just leaving our doors open constantly. We would go to bed at night with everything just open. And if someone said, what? How can you do that? The amazing answer would be something like this. Well, there's no one to break in. 
I, I don't know. There's just not, now it's not fundamentally true and don't judge me for it, but the reality is, is that there's a sense in which where there are no lawbreakers, there is a rest. Do you know how much inefficiency there is in the world dealing with policies and laws because of lawbreakers? And Jesus says, I want you to imagine a harvest that not only makes the sons of the kingdom shine like the sun, but a place where there is true rest because all law-breaking has been done away with. That is what we are headed toward for those who patiently wait on Jesus. Now, a couple of thoughts. If we are those who hear, if you have an ear to hear, what does this change in your heart and in your mind? A couple of things that may change. First, that your activity may lead you to be more reflective of oneself, of yourself, before reflecting on others. This means that you might have more humility to pray things like this, God, give me good soil. God, give me ears to hear. God, sustain me and bring me to maturity as a true child of the King. We would listen to 2 Corinthians' admonition, and it would cause a more gentle, humble self. Perhaps another change, if you had ears to hear, would be that because of your reflection on your own life and your desire to be brought through to maturity, you would become more gracious with those within the church and more gracious of those without. That though you would hold to and understand there are standards of goodness, you would give allowance for the patience, for the patient working of the Spirit of God. You may be less likely to judge too quickly or too harshly. And perhaps one final change. If you saw the steadiness and competence and goodness and timing and discernment of the king, you might be less shrill and panicked in your relationship to the world as a whole. You might be able to say that the enemy still prowls, but God is not mocked. There will be a comeuppance. Things will be put right. You may be the kind of person who is released to, to, to do good, consistent work, but not the kind of panic striving that says, everything depends on me. I have to fix it now. In other words, you might be the kind of person who takes on the yoke of Jesus, which is easy and light, and interacts with the world with that kind of humble, steady spirit. Let's be those who have ears. And may God give us His Spirit to hear. Let's pray.